In this episode, I'm back for part two with Whitney Goodman, author of Toxic Positivity. And we're walking through her personal values, motives, and habits in the key areas of life fulfillment so we can hear what's driven and does drive her to guide us in working through our emotions instead of just slapping a happy face on things. And of course, what she does to design a life that fulfills her. And along the discussion, I press in on some of the areas and her perspective as a full-time therapist and what she's seen in the culture. So we walk through her spiritual values and discuss what she calls an interfaith marriage with her husband of five years and how she feels much of America's toxic positivity was actually born in the Christian church that she was raised in. Me too. In mental health, Whitney talks about the toll it's taking on all of us as we gravitate towards strong identification with certain groups but are more disconnected from individuals in our culture and her own striving for awareness as to how her beliefs are affecting her. She talks about decompressing by reading fiction. We discover that we're both reading uh, some of Colleen Hoover's books right now. And as for achievements, her leading goal right now with a relatively young marriage and first child is having a strong marriage and kids who actually like her. Her new book, again, best-selling book is Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. That's what we talked about in part one a couple days ago. And you can find her and over half a million followers on Instagram at sitwithwit. Hey, if you find value from this podcast, uh, it'd be great if you left a review, let others know what you think. Best thing you can do is keep the conversation going. Talk about what you hear in this episode with someone else. You can always find me, connect with me on website or social media at kevinmiller.co. Next up, Whitney Goodman's values, motives, and habits. Well, after talking in part one about your book, Toxic Positivity, uh, be interesting to walk through these and hear all your happy, positive responses to how you <laughs> deal with, with every area of your life. All right, here we go. So first one, uh, Whitney is spiritual. Tell me about the, yeah, the personal values and perspectives and then the practices that you have there. So spirituality is something that I definitely feel like I need to work on, <laughs> that I have an interfaith marriage. So that's been something that I've been navigating uh, lately in my life that I think we're figuring out is raising our child uh, and trying to merge those two different sects together. Well, so would you say, are we talking different religious perspectives here? Yeah. My husband's Jewish um, and I was raised in the Christian church. Neither of us are super uh, involved, but want to carry on a lot of the traditions from both sides with our children. And so that's been something of like, how can we bring in part of our spiritual beliefs and also some of like the cultural traditional values and, and make them our own? That's been a really interesting exercise kind of talking that through. So I'm, you know, as we're talking about positivity, um, it's interesting. So I had, uh, Tama Bryant on the show. I don't know how long ago who she was president elect of the APA, um, 
She may be, she may be president now. I don't remember. All right. I'm not sure, but a big part of her ethos is spirituality. And it was bringing that into psychology because she said Mm -hmm. as, as a primary tenet of humanity to not bring it in and consider that amongst our patients, we're missing something. So tell me how you look at that with your patients and, and also in regards to this, I mean, cause if you look at your, you're from the Christian background, I am too. Mm-hmm. And that is definitely one that's more of a positivity focused religion. Oh, absolutely. Like all my research shows that this toxic positivity was born in the Christian church. But I think, you know, when it comes to my clients, I can have a day where I'm talking to somebody who's very religious in the traditional sense, somebody that uses uh, astrology, someone that's more spiritual. And I'm always coming back to like, how is this impacting your life? And how can we utilize it in a positive way to help you get where you want to be? And for some people, that means it's the it's the foundation of their values. And for others, it's just a small part. But I think we can always integrate it. Well, and I appreciate you being candid with that, that you and your husband have some differing, uh, would you, well, I'll ask, would you say beliefs or actual values or the values the same, but just some of the manifestations? You know, the values are very similar and I think that's, what's made it easier. It's more just the logistics of like, how do we do this? We've never been in a situation like that before. And I think when you think about how am I explaining this to a child and the different messages you want to bring forward, it, it really makes you think about things that you hadn't considered before. I'll tell you, Whitney, it's, I, so I do, I've got a lot of kids it, and it was even more brought to like what you just said, more acute as they got older and they're yeah. looking at things and it's kind of like the crap hit the fan. They're not going to take my platitudes in, anymore. They're really question, <laughs> And it really brought me to sit back and go, holy smokes, how do I, how do I explain this? And what am I explaining? Again, back to what do I really believe here? And is yeah. that, have you found, is it giving, is it causing you to question? Yeah, you know, I think that's definitely been part of our process. Definitely some more on my husband's end of like, do I really believe this so much that I want to pass it on? Am am I secure in this messaging? Because when you have to explain something to a kid, I think we should mean it. And to know what message that's sending as well. So it's a a very uh, deliberate process. I think. How I'm curious, how often as a, I mean, you've got a lot of clients, how often do you ever have one where spirituality does not come up? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think especially among my younger clients, um, you know, the 25 to 30 range, there has been a lot more movement away from that. I have some very like science pragmatic focused clients that are, it's just not part of their value system right now. Well, and that's supposedly from, you know, what I've read from wherever is the fastest growing quote religion or belief is, is nothing. Or no, they call it none. Is it none? I think. Okay. I, I just know a lot of people have been moving away from organized religion in, in, especially in like the Gen Z younger generations. Oh, so they, I, I, so that's what the stats say moving away from religion, but then my, I'll say my interest, but I'll be candid to say my concern too, is, is if, if that's a move away from 
a consideration or a value in spirituality. I mean, again, as we talked about in part one, I wonder where does that fit in with the diseases of despair, depression, and hope. If there's mm-hmm. not something greater than self and it's just me, it's scary to me. Right. I, I think there's a lot of value in people being connected to something bigger than themselves. And that can be God, the universe, nature, whatever it is, but having something that you're connected to, we we see that reflected in psychological research, that that's very helpful for people. Oh, it's interesting to me, Whitney, as again, somebody like you, who's seen a lot of patients in a therapy role, as you are considering these concepts and yeah, looking at are honoring values overall that the values that you come to. So the next one's relationships. Now you already talked about that. You're married. Even mm-hmm. that, that's a value that a lot of people don't have these days is to, to go forth with marriage. And you said you just became, um, how, how long, how old your kid? My are? son is 15 months. Oh, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And that's a big decision to do. Let me start there then. Since those are, how, how long you been married? I've been married almost five years, five years. Okay. But to do those, I mean, that obviously right there speaks to a value in relationships of, I mean, those are big commitments, both of those married Mm -hmm. and a kid. How did those, were those concise values that you expected or did they kind of come to you? That was definitely something I always thought I would do. Mm -hmm. Um, I genuinely feel that my choice in who I married was the biggest decision I would make in my entire life that would have probably the most impact on me in terms of my career, where I lived, what I believed in. And it's proven to be that in a very positive way. But that's something that I always come back to is like, my relationships are the foundation of my life. They're the most important uh, value to me because I think when everything goes away, that's really all we have left. Yeah, is that and my relationships impact my work, everything else. Well, and I'll ask that again about the having a kid. Was that an intentional? Hey, this is something I'm ready and wanting to do. Yes, I. It kind of just came to me one day whether the body just does that or I was like, all right, it's time. I'm ready to have a kid. Um, but I always knew it was something that I, I would do. And I think going through the process, I realized like, wow, this is a decision that people should put a lot of thought into. Parenting is very difficult and it's a very big deal to bring a life into this world. Um, and you have to, you work at it every single day. I appreciate that. That's as a guy with a lot of kids, I, often see people wonder why did they even, they're not enjoying this. This just doesn't seem yeah. to be fun. It was it more kind of like the, Oh, it's a cute puppy. Let's get that. And then later on you realize it's a big dog that pees everywhere. And I got to feed. <laughs> yeah. When my friends or clients say like, I don't want kids. I'm like, cool. Don't have them. Like nobody, nobody should have children that doesn't want to have them. It's, it's a lot of work. You know, I do want to ask though, as we're talking about spiritual and then onto relationships on marriage, because that's another thing that we're seeing. It seems like, again, I haven't made this a study, but it seems like I hear fewer people that they decide to join someone, cohabitate, but not to actually go through with the formal, you know, marriage. And I'm sure you see a lot of patients the same way. And did Mm -hmm. that did your religious beliefs really drive you to that's something I want to do? Or was there any, your exposure to patients and what you see mm-hmm. 
giving better life or not, or I don't know how to say that exactly, but that helped you decide that that's something that you want to do. Yeah. For me, it wasn't a, it wasn't a religious thing. It was definitely more of like, this is a bigger commitment where I'm going to be intertwining my life with yours. And I think I probably could have done that in some ways without legally becoming married. But to me, it felt like a meaningful and like purposeful next step Mm -hmm. um, where my relationship kind of changed in that moment into something else. I think there's a lot of reasons why people don't take that step based on their own life experiences. But for me, it felt important. Well, the next one's health and wellness. Um, and that is just, I'm looking really just at your own health and wellness. What does Whitney do from a you know movement standpoint? If it's exercise from a nutritional standpoint, what are the things that you have? Well, and first off, again, what do you, what do you value? Why pursue it at all? So health to me is really, I like to feel good. I like to have energy. I like to be able to be with my kid. And so I take whatever steps I can to function at my best, which is really exercise is huge for me from a mental standpoint. I do yoga or Pilates Mm -hmm. probably five or six days a week um, because if I don't do it, I don't feel good. It's the first thing I do in the morning before I start my day. Um, And then in terms of like eating, I, I really like food. I enjoy going out to eat, but I also, I just like to feel focused and good during my day. So I tend to pick foods that are able to do that for me. And I work from home, so I'm very lucky to be able to just like make what I want during the day. Yeah. So what are the <laughs> what are the foods that call out to you that you sometimes avoid so that you can be where you want to be? Yeah, you know, if I eat like a lot of bread or pasta during the day, I feel really tired. So that's stuff that I'll usually eat like when I go out to a restaurant on the weekends. Um, I tend to eat a lot of like fish, vegetables. I really only drink water and coffee. Um, that's just what I found for me works the best in terms of functioning. And again, I want to leverage the fact that you are working with so many people and well in in mental health, which we're going to come to next, but even there, where do you, uh, participate with them on, yeah, the health and wellness just of their body and mind from this standpoint, uh, in Mm -hmm. your own therapy. So a population that I work with a lot is young people that are chronically ill. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of them have autoimmune diseases, things like that. And so their approach to health um, can be really different and really challenging because there's not a lot of answers for whatever they're going through. So with my clients, I try to define like, what does health look like for you? What would it feel like to take care of yourself, to do things that would help improve your day-to-day life? And that may not fit the picture of health that we normally see, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it works for them. And so coming up with that unique picture, uh, I also do a lot of work around helping people accept their bodies um, and feel comfortable in who they are. You know, I actually want to, even though we've kind of gone past the relationships there, one that I meant to ask too was, especially with your marriage. So you're here, this guy, what's your husband's name? Sam, Sam is married to Whitney Goodman, uh, who wrote toxic, positive, toxic positivity. I mean, it's got to come up in the day-to-day conversations where you're like, okay, we're, we're here, aren't we? 
We got to, <laughs> I'm thinking if I'm him, sometimes I go, oh man, we, so we got to really, we can't just blase talk about this. Like something we're going to have to like, this is a thing. Is that? Yeah. Fair? Yeah. You know, it's funny because my husband actually uses my like therapy things against me and I'm the <laughs> one that gets annoyed. I'm like, oh my gosh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, and I bet it's got to have, you got to have some friends that feel the same way. Like, oh my gosh. Okay. Something happened. How do I share this with you, Whitney? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I, I think, uh, I try to take that hat off, you know, when I'm in my personal life because yeah. I'm tired and it's not fair to do that all the time. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, the next one is mind and mental health. So, I mean, this is, gosh, this is the, it's interesting. You spend all day doing this with other people and then mm-hmm. you wake or you end up home at night after a long day or you wake up in the morning and now it's your time. So what, what is often your primary Focus. I mean, there's got to be some kind of debriefing at the end of the day, I would think, for you that's different than for the normal person and in the morning gearing up for it. So where do you – yeah, tell, tell me about that. Yeah, at night I usually um, cook dinner at the end of my day, and that's really helpful for me to just like be in the zone and follow directions, not have to think a lot, try to spend time with my son, especially at the end of the day when he's going to bed. Um, the – sleep is huge for me. Like one of the most important things for my mental health is making sure that I get enough sleep and I do everything I can to make sure that's possible. And then I mentioned the exercise, like I'm usually working out first thing in the morning and that's one of the best ways for me to start my day off on a good foot. I talked to, it's been a couple of years to some, uh, it was a couple who had written a book and in this, they were psychologists and they talked about sometimes the, when the issue there, you know, their, of their focus comes up of almost kind of a, Oh my goodness, I got to practice what I preach. And does, do you get hit with that personally sometimes? Yeah. You know, I've, I've mentioned this on other podcasts. I struggled pretty bad with postpartum depression after I had my son. And that was one of the moments where I was like, wow, I, I knew what it felt like for clients, but I didn't know what it felt like to that degree, like how hard it could be to implement some of these tools. And it was a time where I was like, I really got to, you know, utilize some of this stuff. And, And I also felt a lot of shame around it when it didn't work, you know? So I think anybody who's in a job where then they struggle with what they do, you've experienced that feeling before. Yeah. I do here yeah. I am talking about <laughs> exactly. this, uh, talking about this stuff. And then, you know, some of my exactly. family listen to this and we got to sit down at the dinner table and I got to, <laughs> yeah. So, which is why you'll hear me trying to backpedal sometimes to go, okay, I know this thing. I don't do it so well. Um, right, so, no, I, right. I, 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 t- I totally feel that. You know, again, with the amount of time you spend talking with clients as a therapist and the mental health crisis that we seem to be in. I, what's, what's a, I don't know if it's fair to ask, but almost kind of a top tier issue that you're seeing in our culture with the next person there over and over and over again, that I don't know if it's fair to ask, maybe wasn't there before or is highlighted more now. Mm-hmm. That would definitely be a challenging family dynamics is something that I am working with constantly. Um, 
fighting between generations, not understanding each other, different political beliefs, different beliefs about COVID, different beliefs about identity and lifestyle that I am talking with so many adults who are in conflict with siblings, parents, etc. Why? Why more now? And I asked that because my first thought was, is it the proliferation of that, those things in the media and social media mm-hmm. that's drumming it up or is there something else? So over the last several years as a therapist, I've definitely seen that there has been a major intensification in people identifying with certain groups and like doubling down on identity, right? On all sides of the spectrum. And because of that, there's been a lot of fighting among people who don't agree in a way that I did not experience as a therapist, you know, several years ago, certainly pre-pandemic, that it's gotten a lot harder for people to relate to one another when they don't agree. And I think there's this feeling of like, you're against me if you're not with me. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to, cause I'm curious as to thoughts on why even that, that we want to identify, if there's more of a propensity to identify with certain groups, why well, are we, are we lacking a feeling of belonging otherwise? It's got to be something related to that. I think we've become more disconnected as a culture, right? Despite being so connected on the internet, we're feeling very alone. Loneliness is on the rise. And when that happens, people are much more likely to get radicalized, to have certain beliefs because they want to feel accepted. And it feels really good to be part of a group sometimes where you know the rules, you know what to do to be accepted. It feels safe. Um, and I think people are buying into that more in some ways. I, I had Whitney not not too long ago. I had Andy Norman on the show. He wrote the book, uh, a book called Mental Immunity. And really the second half of the book and the reason I had him on the show was his research on beliefs and how mm-hmm. we, in my paraphrasing, we go awry when we take those beliefs and we wrap our self-image around it. And now we're unbiased. I mean, it really just called me to look at my beliefs and what are, do I feel like is an authentic belief out of, uh, as unbiased as I can be out of, I guess I think that that just really is, is a more healthy life-giving thing as opposed to in my back to us talking initially about religion or, or mm-hmm. no, my identity is, is connected to this. And I don't really have the ability to question it. Are you seeing that with patients? Yeah. And you know, I, I think that it's that, and when your identity is your beliefs, like when you're so wrapped up in it, it feels very threatening to have conversations with other people Um, And this is, of course, all very, very nuanced. I think there's certain topics that are threatening to certain people for real. Uh, But it's become harder to have conversations, I think, especially within families who have different points of view. So then I want to ask, what are some of the primary, I was going to say directives, treatments, I mean, that you're helping people with? Is it to consider their own beliefs or is it more of a focus on just grace with their family member? I think it's both. And and also I'm a big fan in helping people create uh, more dynamic relationships with their family. And so I think sometimes as adults, we're operating like children where we have to have all of our needs met by the parent and be in this specific type of relationship with them when really it's okay to say, I don't talk to my dad about this. I don't go to him with emotional issues, but I like to fish with him. 
and we work out together? And how can I learn to like certain things about people and get other needs met in other areas? Or maybe you decide this person is so destructive to my life. I cannot have a relationship with them. And that's when we would walk down that path. Well, it's an interesting position that you're in as a therapist where you're there not to judge or tell somebody they're wrong, just that you've, you've got to yourself be kind of uber accepting, at least at face value of a multitude of different beliefs. For sure. I mean, as a therapist, my concern is always, how is this impacting your life? And how can we get you from where you are to where you want to be with the least amount of damage as possible to others and to yourself? Well, and that feels like a call out for all of us to look at our beliefs and say, how is this impacting my life? Is it helping me or is it hurting me? It feels like a lot, it feels like any, that's what we're talking about, that we're in a culture right now where a lot of our beliefs don't, they seem to be hurting more than helping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Next one's work and career and business. So as you look at your own, uh, so you got, you know, a, a thriving practice and now you have this whole other world uh, beyond this, where you go from a client. Now you're talking to me about (laughs) you and your message and, and I'm sure lots of other opportunities, you know, coming up, it's probably caused and being a mom to look at with maybe even more clarity. What is your value for your work? My work is extremely important to me. Um, It's something that inspires me, gives me fulfillment, makes me feel useful, all of those things. And I'm very passionate about the work that I'm doing. I spoke about those integrating those different parts, right? And so for me becoming a mom, my work was a part where it was like, how can I bring my work in with my child and make this work? And also navigating that in a relationship where you have two working parents and both of your work being important. Um, and both of you being parents to the child that I think it's been a a consistent process of figuring that out. And now I'm in a place where I feel like it feels more natural. (laughs) So just a big shift from this is all I've got to do to now you've got to bring more of, I guess, a a, a robust life into the mix and it just can't be more work focused. So that's got to be, again, more acute right now as you have more opportunities than ever popping up and people like me asking you to come on a show and spend two hours. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely more balanced. And, you know, I will say that the greatest gift about having a child for me was that it made me very focused and it made me understand how time works in a little bit better way. So now it's like, if I have an hour to do something, I'm using that hour, not like sitting on my phone, because uh, I know that I need to then be with my child and do all these other things that are big values for me. So is it kind of a, I mean, you're more focused on the, how you're budgeting your time, of course, we could say that, but also is it, is it, you find yourself in the kind of the more work smart, what can I get rid of? What can I delegate? Yes. And I'm really just focusing on what's important uh, and not getting so caught up in like things that don't matter. It's easier to say no to, to projects that aren't important when you have other things that are so big in your life, like your kids or your relationship. Well, and so this as your practice is growing and now you've got this book and you've got things like this promotional opportunities. And if you get paid to speak somewhere where do I'm just, I'm curious where are you, how much are you going to let this 
impact your practice and take, I mean, I don't want to say take away because it, it's not mm-hmm. a takeaway, but it's going to say, I got to, I'm going to, I'm only going to do this much on the practice and I'm going to let it, you get the point, the point, but yeah, you know, over the last couple of years, I've gotten to a place where I know exactly like how many clients I like to see in a week, no matter what else I have going on. And so I really have those hours set aside. And once they're full, I don't do any more clients, um, regardless of how full my life is in other areas. But my clients are always such a big, important part of my work. And they're really at the top, you know, of everything that I do. You know, Whitney, you talking about younger clientele. I'm interested in the perspectives on work because we see a lot of changes happening back to that aspect of expectations of work. And you got this book called toxic positivity. And it seems like, again, it's not an area of focus for me, but I, I, I see enough out there. It feels like as we're in danger of having a perspective of work just needs to be fun and mm. positive. And that's not really relevant kind of back you know, back to the, you know, the, in, in part one, I read the piece by Frederick Backman on him saying, ask the people who are really concerned about things and even obsessed with things that are creating things and doing good work in essence. And again, that's one guy's perspective, but I, I resonate with that a little bit. And if work's just supposed to be happy, can you really produce well, if it's just fun and foosball and a, in flip-flops? Yeah, I don't think that work should be fun and happy all the time. And I think actually that stunts creativity. It makes people unable to talk about what's going wrong and and fix things. Um, But I think young people are definitely realizing that they don't want work to be the center of their lives in the same way that maybe previous generations decided to form their life around work. And there's certainly a cultural battle I think happening right now in a lot of workplaces between the generations. Well, you're an interesting muse, Whitney, with work, because you're going to spend when you're not doing this, hopefully this is, this is fairly fun, but uh, when you're not, when you're with patients, you're not there hearing, hearing happy stuff. You're there because they've got a problem. So you're going to spend your day listening to people's problems by proxy. That's what, that doesn't feel like a happy thing. I'm going to assume that it's very fulfilling, but what a great opportunity for you to share that with, especially, yeah, if we're going to talk a young, younger demographic, say, yeah, that's, this is not happy stuff. Um, you're not sitting there just, you know, on cloud nine happy, but obviously it's fulfilling. So reconcile that. It's fulfilling because there's change happening and you're watching a, a human's ability to navigate through really difficult things and come out the other side with some sort of knowledge, awareness, uh, a lot of them create change in their life. And that doesn't mean that everything gets perfect and great. But I have so much uh, hope from my job that people can change and people can be different. And and that I think is a really positive thing. It's interesting. Anthony Robbins is credited at least with saying some of the happiest people that he's seen to talk to, to, to elevate happiness is just those who are making positive progress. And you could say you're do. I mean, obviously you're doing that with patients, but you also get to see them. It's almost a voyeuristic. 
you're able to see that with them and you're helping, you have a causation in that as a therapist, but then able to see that. So you're experiencing for the most part progress every day. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. And, and I think witnessing people just showing up every week saying like, my growth is important. I want to work on this is really cool to see. Next one is money and finances and wealth, which again, you're in an interesting time now with a growing business. You've got now the book and other things happening, um, married with a spouse who's working and now a kid, it's probably pulled in some more of focus Mm -hmm. on what are our values around money? What are we doing here? Tell me about it. Yeah. Money to me has always been about freedom, not necessarily about like stuff or anything like that, but just the ability to say like, I need to take time off because my kid is sick or I'm sick and I need to take time off the ability to be able to structure my life in a way that makes sense for me and not feeling like my life is ruled by that because I've set myself up in a good way. How does, so bring money into the, into the arena of your book. Where are we, I'll ask initially, I'll ask initially, where are we going awry with the perspective of positivity and money? I hate all the like financial manifestation stuff. That's like, think positive $10,000 will arrive in your bank account (laughs) tomorrow. And, you know, you see all this stuff online that, I think you have to, of course, believe that you can be successful and all of that, but then really looking at like, what's it going to take for me to be financially successful? What do I need to do? What does that look like for me? And also unraveling a lot of the messaging that you got about money from childhood, from your parents. That's a lot of what I hear from clients that they could all have the same amount of money in their bank account, and they're all going to feel very differently about what that means. What is the propensity then of what you see clients hearing from their upbringing? Some people grow up with very much like a scarcity mindset around money, like money is to be hoarded and saved away and never spent. There are people who grew up, you know, with a very insecure financial situation. They don't know where their next meal or paycheck is coming from. And then there are people who grew up, you know, with a lot of money and never learned any financial literacy. And I think we see issues that can pop up all along that spectrum. With what you said before the manifesting, you know, $10,000 in my bank account or whatever, (laughs) are you just, do you find yourself in more of a pragmatic place? Yeah. And I think it just ignores all of, you know, the institutionalized barriers to some degree that prevent people from earning. You know, I'm somebody that I say this openly, I graduated from grad school with no debt. Like I'm in a very different financial situation than some of my peers when they start out. So if I start walking around telling everybody, you can start a private practice tomorrow, like just do it. It's not true. You know, if you don't have the support of a spouse or someone else, I think we have to be honest about what it takes and where people are starting out on that spectrum. The last one here, Whitney, is kind of a combo of achievements and interest. And I'm 
Well, I, you know what? I want to back into a question by just asking you about interest that you have. So you are, I mean, you've got a business, you got a book, you got a marriage, you got a kid, you got, are there some other things that you invest in that just, you just do it to inspire you? So I read a lot of like fiction books, things like that in my, like, uh, what are those Colleen Hoover books? I got into a bunch of those. I'm also just like, I like to just watch reality TV and like decompress, not do anything serious in my downtime. Otherwise my life is very full from work and my family, to be honest. Whitney, no lie. I just started the first Colleen Hoover book last night. Did you, which one are you reading? I don't remember which one's the first one. Oh man. It's, um, I'm gonna have to look it up. I don't, let me see if, how, how quick I can be here. Colleen, <laughs> pull her up. And I just started, and I saw it somewhere. Uh, it ends with us. Oh yeah. I've read that one. Okay. Well, I, it was one that I stumbled on somewhere and mm-hmm. it was like, apparently everybody on earth has read this, but me. Um, yeah, it's a good book. It was like, the, like the, the the what's the recent one? The Crawdads book. The uh, yeah, what, where the Crawdads where thing. Or, yeah, exactly. It's one that I. Yeah. It's probably like I read something and it was on Amazon or something. People like this, like this, and I saw it and it had yeah forty thousand comments or something like that. And I mean, I missed the boat, so I got it. And I I honestly started it last night. Read maybe that's like too funny. Two chapters, and then I woke up later in the night, and I was so tempted to start reading again, but I, I, I did it for my. <laughs> For my sleep health. So, okay. So, uh, reading, I, but on that, I'm interested in interests. I am. That's why I asked guests about that. Where, again, when you see people and they've got work or you could say school and they've got family, what value do you put on having things that you do just for, just for you? It's not a, I'm, I'm going to put it in the category of it's not a, a tangibly or face value, it's not a productive thing. You're not building, creating, doing whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just, this is just for you. Mm-hmm. I think it's, that's so important. Um, and, and that really can be anything, right? Like I think it can be laying on the beach. It can be reading. It can be creating in some way. I do think that it's very important to have outlets that are low stakes that we're not doing for any mm-hmm. specific outcome um, is really good for us mentally. I'm writing that down that are low stakes. That's a great way. I, Cause I generally, I'm trying to say, you know, it's not a productive thing, but I mean, it's producing peace or joy or whatever, Sure. But a low stakes. Okay. I may, I'm going to, I'll reference you on that and get, and get royalties <laughs> on that one. Okay. Well, in the same sense, then um, the things that we do on, in regards to achievements, and I'm so aware it was it's actually, so I've got a book that's coming out and it's one of the things that I wrote on as one of these primary areas of life fulfillment, because I realized how in our resumes, what do we talk about? What we've achieved so far, mm-hmm. you know, the, the end of life, the obituary it's, uh, that, and that's what there was somebody in our family that died. And I was, you know, the, they do the obituary and it's everything they did. And I'm thinking, gosh, this has so much value, but do we think about that today? Is it really driving us. And well, you know what? I'll start off by, by saying where we're at to ask, okay, the achievements, but where do we maybe go awry with that when it's just all on a positive basis? It's the things that I've done when there may be some achievements that aren't, you're not going to post it on social media, but that mean as much or more. 
Right. I think it gets tricky when we tie our worth to our achievements or make it one of the biggest parts of our identity. Uh, I'm somebody that's quite achievement oriented. I like to have goals all the time and that feels good for me. But if I ever get into a place where I'm like, if I don't achieve this, uh, I'm bad. I didn't do a good job. I'm worthless. That's a problem. It's figuring out like, is it motivating you or is it leading you to shame? Huh. Is it even, do you find that sometimes I'm thinking out loud here that it, that it probably with some people, it imprisons them as well. For sure. I mean, especially if you look at people, I've worked with people who have always gone to the best schools, gotten the best grades, uh, you know, all whatever, cum laude, blah, blah, blah. And then the second they don't achieve the highest thing, they get destroyed. And so it's good sometimes to live outside of that and not tie your whole identity to that. Well, I'll ask you then again, being in the time of life you are with a five-year-old marriage, a 15-year-old kid, a, a, a career that's a flourishing, I assume that again, it's kind of brought you back to go, okay, what are the achievements that I really, what are, what, what do I really value? Yeah. And I think we think about achievements in the sense of like awards and things like that. And to me, I know that an achievement that's very important to me is like having a strong marriage. Um, You know, my kids liking me when they're adults and feeling connected to me, like things like that would be, I would look back on my life and be like, wow, I, I wanted that and I worked for it. Well, then I'll ask too, with your patients, what are the, when we look at the cultural achievements, we're back to the social media and the highlight reels and the car and the things that we have and the, and the things that we do, the exotic vacation or whatever, that as you are working with them on their mental health, what are the achievements that when it comes down to it are the ones that really provide them with some peace and fulfillment? I think it goes back to relationships again and, and feeling like what they did in their life was meaningful. You know, they they had purpose, they felt fulfillment and they felt connected to the people around them. Yeah. I don't know of a better reason to read your book, to get into this message on toxic positivity, because your point is not to diss positivity again, which we talked about in part one, but to, gosh, it seems like what we keep coming back to is to elevate our fulfillment and our connectedness. Yes. Uh, hey, thank you. Thank you for uh, being with me again for round two and just uh, yeah, sharing some of the behind the scenes values and habits. Uh, appreciate your time and your work, Whitney. Thank you so much. All right, friends, again, Whitney Goodman's book is Toxic Positivity, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. And you can find her and her more than half a million followers on Instagram at Sit With Wit. Thank you, as always, for choosing to tune into the Self-Helpful Podcast. Be great if you left a review, let others know about the show as well. And most of all, keep the discussion going. I sincerely hope I've helped you help yourself so that you can help others.